Anyone who hears these bad words, the law today, I pray that you would know that uh, you are a sinner and that God is just. God must punish sin. And he shows that especially by the cross of Jesus Christ, that sin was punished on that cross. So if you come to Jesus, this one who invites you, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest, he truly does that, he gives rest. He forgives sin. Uh, He wipes away the debt that you yourself cannot pay. Finally, our sermon text this morning is Acts chapter 2. You have a sermon notes page as well uh, in the bulletin. There's also a little uh, map there because uh, there's a list of peoples and nations uh, that had had been brought to uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So that might help you visualize what's Peter is saying here, so Acts 2, uh, 1 through 13. Uh, Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost, and so uh, it's fairly lengthy, and so we're going to focus our minds and hearts this morning just on the first 13 verses. We'll come back, Lord willing, uh, to Peter's actual sermon next Sunday. Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. And all of God's people say, Amen. Well, how would you describe uh, the Holy Spirit's relationship to uh, Jesus Christ? And to you as a Christian, what's the relationship between the two, the Spirit of the Lord and the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit and you as Christian? Well, Jesus told his disciples uh, in John chapter 16 uh, the relationship between Jesus, who was going to ascend, and the Holy Spirit, who was going to descend, He said this in John 16 of the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God's role is to magnify Jesus Christ, is to glorify Christ, is to lift up Jesus Christ, and to teach us about Christ. Amen? That's the Spirit's role uh, in the life of the church of Jesus is to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, therefore, the dead could not be made alive. 
The blind could not see. The ignorant could not know the things of God. And so as one writer said, as a body with, uh, without breath is a corpse. So the church without the spirit is dead. So how is it then that we are as Christians and as a church of Christians, a body of believers, how then are we to be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, how are we even, dare I say, to be a Pentecostal church? Is that, okay? is that okay to say that? How are we to be a Pentecostal church? Well, we want to begin where we left off from last Sunday. The King himself, Jesus, has uh, been raised. He has ascended into heaven. Uh, and before he did that, we saw the king was teaching his kingdom people, the citizens of his kingdom, to wait in Jerusalem because he was going to send them a gift, a gift that was going to empower them, uh, a gift that was going to cause them to burst forth from that little upper room where there were just about 120 disciples. And from Jerusalem, from that upper room, just those 100 plus disciples or so, the gospel of Jesus, the name of Christ, is going to go out to Jerusalem, of course, but also throughout the region of Judea, the southern part of the kingdom of God, to Samaria, just north of that, and to the ends of the earth. And so they were all together in one place, verse 1 tells us. They were all there waiting. It's been 10 days since Jesus ascended. Where is the promise of the Spirit? The one who's going to take the things of Christ and teach them to us. Where is this power so that we, disciples, can go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? And so they're waiting there. They're in that room waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus said to wait for. And now we read, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So right from the get-go, Luke, the author, is linking us back to the Old Testament. I described uh, the book of Acts two Sundays ago like a bridge. Remember that? It's like a bridge. Uh, and that bridge links both the Old and the New Testaments and to us. It brings to us all that stuff. Uh, it links for us the ministry of Christ on earth to his ministry now in heaven. It links the apostles and those who saw Jesus raised up and who testified of the resurrection, it links them to us, the book of Acts does. And so here's this bridge again from going backwards to the Old Testament, that when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Pentecost was one of the three required feasts of the Old Testament. All Jewish meals, according to God's law, were to assemble in Jerusalem three times a year. Do you know those three feasts? Well, the first one has already happened in the, in the stories. If we're in Acts and you read backwards into Luke's gospel, the first of those has already happened. That's why they're still here in Jerusalem. On what day did Jesus die on the cross? Which festival was that? That was the Passover festival, wasn't it? And so now we have that the, the second of these festivals, Pentecost, uh, or in the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks, sometimes called the Feast of Harvest. And there's also the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. So Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles or Booths. 
And so they were to celebrate every single year, every single male in Israel, all Jewish males, and that's why they're gathering from all the four corners of the known world, the the Roman Empire, where the Jews had been dispersed throughout the centuries. They're all coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate this Pentecost festival, this festival of weeks, the festival of the harvest. It, It celebrated the end of the barley harvest. And what a great uh, 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 intended irony of God himself that here is the harvest being brought to the disciples. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest uh, would send out laborers. And in this case, the harvest, the wheat is brought to the laborers to harvest. Well, what does it mean when we read here in the ESV, at least, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Arrived, or as the old King Jimmy says, was fully come. It was fully come, or as uh, more modern translations say, it was fulfilled. It was uh, a day that had arrived. So it's, it's saying something, let me just say this, it's saying something more than just that it came year after year like it had done in years before. Pentecost arrived on this date, just like it had last year on that date, and the year before that on that date, uh, uh, and so forth, all the way into the past. Luke uses, the author uses, a a word that has prophetic significance here. Uh, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet, that we just had finished reading through in in our Old Testament readings, he spoke about the 70 years of the Babylonian exile being completed. That's the same Greek word that's used here, the day of Pentecost, arrived. That's why the King James says it was fully come, uh, or it was fulfilled. Uh, it, was, it had come to some prophetic reality. Uh, Luke uses himself again uh, this very same uh, word in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when he says, The time had come for the Lord to ascend into heaven. So think of it like this. Uh, imagine uh, uh, an hourglass that's right in front of you, and it has on top all the grains of sand and as the hourglass gets smaller towards the middle, like one or two or maybe a few more of grains can begin to trickle down one at a time, little by little. Uh, and we call it an hourglass because the, the grains of sand take about an hour uh, to get from the top through that little funnel into the bottom. Okay, So think about an hourglass. Here in Acts 2, we're witnessing the ultimate fulfillment of this feat. It's not that the top of the hourglass is empty, but now the bottom part of it is full. The disciples celebrate not the end of Pentecost, but the beginning of Pentecost's purpose, when the harvest of the nations would come to the Lord. And I'll come back to that uh, towards the end. So it's not just that the, that the Pentecost had come in a sort of a normal way of speaking, you know, this day came, that day came. And it's not that the, the day of Pentecost, the feast, came to its ultimate, uh, or it, it came to its end because it's no longer celebrated, say. No, it came to its fulfillment. It came to its completion, its reality, its purpose now uh, in this day in which the disciples gather there waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ on high, and the nations come, and they begin to spread the gospel in Jerusalem eventually Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The Spirit's relationship to Christ is to glorify Christ, and 
to teach the disciples about Christ so that they can teach others about Christ. And as a time for this, for this kingdom to go out and the harvest had come, uh, Luke describes Pentecost's significance here for us. These Pentecostal signs that we see in our passage. Notice, first of all, the sign, in quotation marks, of sound. The sign of sound. Again, capture the significance and the setting of that day. There's a room. There's a second story of a room somewhere in Jerusalem. And it's big enough to, 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 to seat, to house, to stand, to pray about 120 people. But don't forget, they're, for the most part, insignificant men and women. I mean, in fact, the, the Jews and the God-fearers from all across the Roman Empire and even the Parthian Empire, uh, they said, are these not Galileans? Insignificant. Not the rich, not the high, not the mighty, but Galileans with a strange Jewish northern accents. Something was going to happen in that room to change the course of human history. And Luke describes something that sounded like, he says, a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house. This was no mere early morning Mediterranean breeze that just happened to refresh them that morning. No, it was a sign. The sign that Pentecost was, in fact, a new creation. This is the language of the Bible of a new creation. The the sound, this rushing wind that fills the whole house. It's the sign of a new creation. Pentecost was more than just fulfilling an Old Testament feast. It was a picture of a new creation to come. How do we know this? Well, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit like wind, doesn't he? John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wants, where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, just like wind is sovereign, wind is powerful, wind is controlled only by itself. If we can only just harvest the wind, we're told today, right? we'd have all the energy we need. You can't control the wind. It goes where it wants. It is too powerful to control. In the same way, the Spirit of God is sovereign, powerful, controlled only by himself. He is the sovereign, creative presence of God. And we saw this in our Genesis sermons. Way back when in Genesis chapter 2, whenever that was, last year or so, uh, we saw in Genesis 2 verse 7 where the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And so he made this clay shape, this clay, uh, lifeless figure, this man, this creation, but yet it wasn't yet a he. It wasn't yet alive. Not until we read, and the Lord God not only formed from the dust of the earth, the ground, but what, it also, but, but, but what also did he do? He breathed into its nostrils the breath of life and what happens what does genesis 2 7 say after the lord breathed into this clay thing's nostrils we read 
it became a living being, right? A living soul, nefesh haya, a living soul, a being, a human being made in God's image and likeness. And so from the ground, the same stuff that you and I are made of, the same lumps of clay that we are, the same carbon that we are, the same dirt, but yet it was lifeless. And it wasn't until the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit entered him that the breath that gave life, he became what he was not before, a living creature. And so the wind image in Scripture oftentimes signifies the power of the Holy Spirit to give life. So there's God who creates all things, the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 verse 2, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God. The wind, the breath of God, hovered. And that wind, that breath, that spirit fills Adam, that lifeless clay creature, makes him a living creature, gives him new life. Another example. Another example. After we finish reading through Lamentations, we'll then jump into the prophet Ezekiel and Later on in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 37, there's this very powerful images of, uh, in the Old Testament of God's creative power. Ezekiel looks out and sees in a vision a valley. Two mountains coming down into a valley. And that valley is filled to the brim with dead, lifeless bones. The people of God were like lifeless corpses. They were dead to God. And the valley was filled up with bones, like a dump. The Lord commands the prophet Ezekiel to make them alive. How was Ezekiel going to make dead bones alive? And he even asks that. Oh, Lord God, how is this to be? The prophet is told by the Lord himself, it's through Ezekiel's preaching, that life is going to enter bones. Flesh is going to be put onto dead, lifeless bones, dry bones, and to cause them to come to life. Ezekiel 37.11 says, These bones are the whole house of Israel. The Spirit gave life. And once again, the prophet describes how the Spirit of God hovers over those lifeless bones, Israel, and causes them once again to be a people of God. To give life. And so there it was in that upper room. There it was in that room with the 120 disciples. King Jesus took lifeless pieces of clay, a bunch of dry bones, and recreated them, breathed into them the breath of life, caused them to take upon, as it were, flesh and life and new creation, and to bring that new creation to the end of the earth. As one hymn says it, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that line. That's the, that's the title of the hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. What's the next line? Kids, what's the next line? Do you know that hymn? She is his what? New creation by water and the word. New creation. That's the first thing. The sign, the sign of sound. They 
They hear this mighty rushing wind. It fills the room. And it is a sign of God doing a new work of creation. Notice, secondly, then, there's another sign. This is an actual sign, the sign of sight. Verses 3 and 4. We read there about these divided tongues as of fire. Notice the simile language again, the like, the as there. Something like fire. That's what, that's, what, that's what these tongues look like that are on each of their heads. The strange sign, the strange sight, as of fire. So again, we, this is a simile, and it, ha- it means something. Well, what does it mean? What is it saying to us on the day of Pentecost? What's this sign all about? Well, again, it points us back to the Old Testament. We've got to know our Bible to understand these things. Uh, we might, I should have said at the very beginning, you know, when we think about the book of Acts, what's the one chapter that we probably associate with the entire book? It's Acts 2. And what's the thing that everybody wants to know? Can I speak in tongues too, right? That's all we care about, you know. Get to the good stuff. Can we speak in tongues or not? When I was in college, the... Way back when, uh, there was an ad, uh, a flyer, you know. We didn't have phones back then. We had flyers. Little cork boards where things were posted on. And this, there was this Bible study that was going to be held on campus. And I remember it because uh, you know, I was, I was you know, learning about all these things. I was you know, in charismatic Pentecostal churches and wondering about all these things. And, uh, and the, the title of the flyer that was all across campus for this new Bible study it was going to meet was Your Own Personal Pentecost. Your Own Personal Pentecost. And I went. I went. <laughs> and it was all about one thing. You know, how you can be filled with the Spirit so that you can speak in tongues. That's all it was about. Your own personal Pentecost. There's, 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 there's way more about Acts chapter 2 than just, you know, your personal Pentecost. What you want, what you can get out of it, what we can draw from it and so forth. How we can follow the pattern. These are signs of bigger things. They point us back to the Old Testament. What's the imagery of fire? What is fire an image of, a sign of, a, a, a metaphor, a simile of in the Old Testament? Fire is a symbol of, of two things oftentimes, cleansing and judgment. Cleansing and judgment. And those present on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, as Jewish believers, no doubt knew from their childhood, their Sabbath day stories, their Sunday school stories, we would call them today, the burning bush of Exodus 3. And Moses is there, standing, as the text tells us, on holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Because God was there. The Lord was there. That's why it was holy ground. It was just dirt with rocks. Taking some sheep up there to try to find some pasture, right? Try to find some some grass sprouting out from behind a rock somewhere. But the Lord was there. It was holy ground. 
And how did Moses know the Lord was there? What did he see? He takes his sheep over there, but he turns and he sees the strange sight over there. What did he see? He saw a bush burning on fire, but the bush wasn't consumed. What was the fire? A picture of, a visual sign of the Lord. The Lord spoke out of that fiery bush. It was holy ground. It was holy ground. The cleansing aspect is seen in the fact that the Lord, utterly holy and pure, which the imagery of fire brings out so clearly, but also the judgment aspect that that Moses was forced to the ground in acknowledgement of his own unholiness. God is holy, I'm not. He sees the Lord in perfect holiness and his cleansing fire but yet he feels the judgment of that fire, and so he falls down upon his face in holy ground. These Jews at the day of Pentecost, they knew their Old Testament. They knew the story of God's continual presence with his people out in the wilderness, and how was that presence signified to the Jews in the wilderness, running away from, uh, leaving Egypt, running from the Pharaoh's armies and chariots? How do they know the Lord was with them? What do they see every day and every night? They saw a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud by day. And that comforted the Israelites to know that God was with them. He would protect them, but it warned the the Egyptians. If you get too close to that boundary marker of that cloud of fire, you're going to be like a burnt piece of toast. Dead. But most importantly, There's all these images in the Old Testament of God's fire, cleansing, and judgment. But most important is the story of the filling of the Old Testament tabernacle later on the temple. We saw last, uh, the last couple of Sundays that here is Jesus Christ doing the work of building his kingdom. He's the king, and he's teaching his disciples about the kingdom in those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, the things of the kingdom of God. He's building the kingdom. He's building it himself. And the kingdom of God is described, I mentioned, uh, uh, at times as a temple. As a temple. All these images kind of come together in different ways. And in Exodus chapter 40, again, a basic story that the Israelites would have, uh, that the Jews would have known, these believers would have known, Peter, the disciples, and the the apostles and the the disciples. Uh, And in Exodus 40, the end of that story, narrates for us what happened when the tabernacle of God was finished. Moses built it with uh, his friends, those gifted by the Holy Spirit, uh, Aholiab and Bezalel built, uh, uh, embroidered the curtains and so forth. And once it was finally erected and it was there standing amidst in the center of the camp of the Israelites, what happened? There's this building, right? There's this, it's made of lifeless stuff cloth and uh and colors and and stones and 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 wood and there's gold in it as well and so forth but it's a lifeless building it can't move itself it's got to be built and it has to be taken down and carried around and then built again it's lifeless but what happened once it was erected for the first time what came down and filled it you know the story the imagery of fire and cloud 
filled the tabernacle. They offered up sacrifices. The fire of God descended down and burnt and consumed up those offerings of animal sacrifices and filled the Holy of Holies. And all those who would bring offerings to the tabernacle, they were cleansed as surely as their offering was judged in the fire on behalf of their sins. It's either you put yourself on the altar and be burnt to a crisp, or an animal is in your place. It is judged, and you are cleansed, forgiven. And later on, the people of God failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed again. The temple and its priesthood was defiled. God's holy presence, God's house was defiled. And we read this in Malachi chapter 3, that a day was coming, a day was going to come, when suddenly the Lord would come to his temple And what was he going to do? Purify the sons, the priests of Levi like a refiner's fire. At Pentecost, the tabernacle came to its reality. The fire of God's cleansing and consecration rested on the disciples. They each now, as little temples, as it were, together as one people of God, each have this fire resting upon their head. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy of Holies was once filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 is about what the church is. What the church is, by definition, the church of Jesus Christ, this is what it is. It's a spirit-filled people. It's not about our own personal spiritual journey and whether or not we are going to have our own personal Pentecost. is what the church is. The church is a new creation. The church is a holy temple in the Lord, filled with the Spirit of God. That's what the church is. Pentecost had come. It's a new creation. It's a new temple. But notice there's this sign of speech. And what's interesting is that on the day of Pentecost, God's ancient curse upon the nations at the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter number 11, confusing the nation's languages, scattering the nations, it was all reversed. And the church is shown on the day of Pentecost in this sign to be a new humanity. The church is where the peoples of the world are to come to find their unity in the Lord himself. The disciples began, verse 4, to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we read also there of devout men from every nation, and this is Luke speaking from his vantage point uh, as a Roman citizen, viewing the Roman Empire as the world. And you have here not just Rome, but also the, the Parthian Empire, the, uh, one of the great uh, antitheses of the Roman Empire in the ancient world. Both Jews and proselytes, those who are not Jews, but who came to worship a God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. And notice that they hear, verse 6, the, these disciples in this upper room, 
So loud was the sound, notice, that rushing mighty winds. And they hear the disciples speak in his own language the mighty works of God. There's two words that are used here. We have uh, translated in verse number four, uh, tongues, and then you have in verse number six, uh, language, his own language. And so these, these tongues uh, are languages. They're, they're equated together. And actually the word for language there is dialectos, as we get into English as dialects or languages. And so they're, they're speaking in the languages of these peoples that are coming there and, and gathering there from all across the world. Parthians, Romans, Egyptians, and so forth. All across the ancient world. These are Jews who had been dispersed in the Old Testament. The Assyrians, the Babylonians came, destroyed them, and so forth. And they were spread out, and they lived there. And they, and they for 400 years... Uh, more than 400 years, uh, had children and set up families, set up communities, set up synagogues. But they had to come three times a year. And so they're coming. And with them, some, some, some Gentiles are coming. Some proselytes are coming. And they're all hearing these Galileans who speak, who only speak in their own dialect of Aramaic. That's their language. But yet they're speaking in these particular languages of all these people from all the parts of the world. They're hearing the mighty works of God in their own particular dialects, verse 6. The Tower of Babel, all the people of God, uh, uh, all the world's nations are described as coming together to build a name for themselves to reach up into heaven. And so God confuses the nations and he disperses everybody and they all then speak different languages as a curse upon our human race for our sins. And then we go to Europe and we have to pull out our Duolingo real quick and we've got to pull out our Google Translate. We go to South America, whatever it is, and we're trying to really quick talk to somebody, right? It's a curse upon our human race. But... But here, notice, it's not, that the, it's not that the disciples are building a tower up to heaven. No, it's God who is in heaven, Christ, descending down to the disciples to reach the nations, to bring them all together as one. And yes, we still have different languages, but yet on that day, the miracle was that these Galilean Jews were speaking in languages that they did not know so that the nations could hear the mighty works of of God to be brought together into one as a new people a new humanity and so what a message this is to us and what a message that it is that we have together as believers in Christ for the world our society and our cultures and and our media can tell us all they want about diversity and coming together but ultimately that only happens this side of glory in God's kingdom the only true lasting unity can be found in the king himself, Jesus Christ, and in his kingdom. It's only in the church that those of various shades of colors and origins of birth and various ideologies can be united together by the saving grace of God so that we can say in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Some of us are white. Some of us are black. Some of us are everything in between. But in Christ, we're one. Our identity is not that stuff or anything else. It's Christ. It's Christ. And the Old Testament, again, Genesis 10, that table of nations that's listed in Genesis chapter 10, that is somewhat picked up here by Luke uh, in Acts chapter 2. And then you have the confusion of the Tower of Babel, and that's now being reversed in some sense here on the day of Pentecost. And there were Old Testament prophecies saying this very thing. Isaiah chapter number 2 describes that a day is coming when the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be exalted above every other mountain. And all the nations are going to come and uh, with the Jews to that mountain and say, Come, let us worship the God of Israel and learn His ways. Both Jews and Gentiles together. But notice this. Just one, one verse to look at uh, before we close here. This prophecy really is amazing to me. Zechariah, uh, an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament book that we probably uh, haven't read in quite a while. But in Zechariah chapter number 3, I believe it is, Oh, Zephaniah, sorry. Uh, Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10. And uh, the prophets speaking in the time of judgment, in the time of exile, in the time of lamentation. The nations have come against the people of God and and, and taken them captive, have put some to death, destroyed the temple, and so forth. So there's all this confusion, all this dispersion. But notice this. Zephaniah 3.9 For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. The peoples, that's the Gentiles, the, the nations, the world. Why? That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now, if you're in Acts, go back to Acts 2, and we're not there yet, but uh, in Peter's sermon, in Peter's sermon, uh, he tells us, there uh, at the end of his sermon, verse uh, Acts 2, verse 39. He says, uh, the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone, the Lord, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. How are we to be saved? What shall we do? And so forth. Repent, be baptized. Everyone the Lord calls shall be saved. And that those verses of calling upon the name of the Lord are quoted throughout the book of Acts to, f- to show us the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The days of Zephaniah when God is going to change languages so that everyone can worship the one true God. Those days have come. Those days have come. The prophet Isaiah said that there's going to be a day to come in which five cities in Egypt are going to speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord. The Gentiles, the nations, the peoples, the cursed peoples, the the peoples that are dispersed throughout the world, unbelievers are going to come and worship the Lord, the God of the Israelites. And that's what, we've, that's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing today. 
These signs were all meant to show that Christ Jesus is doing something new. He's making all things new. He's creating a new world. He's filling a new temple. He's creating a new humanity. And the joyful thing for us is that we get to participate in that. We are that, first of all. We are that. But we get to, as we're going to see throughout Acts, we get to participate in that. As those the Lord has taken uh, out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. For those who are once dead who have been made alive, we are this new creation who gets to be used by God. And we each, as I mentioned last Sunday, we are like living those living stones and we are the walls of the new temple in the New Testament. And we are, as whether we are Jews or Gentiles, we are those who come together because the wall has been toppled and now we're no longer separated, but we are a new people in Jesus Christ. And we get to be used by God in the world of place of confusion, a place of death, a place of darkness, a place of of complete chaos in our time. Everybody has multiple ideologies and personalities and all kinds of things today, all kinds of identifications. No, we find it in Christ. We find it in Christ. And we get to tell people that. That in Jesus Christ, all the chaos ceases. We find rest for our souls. And I pray as we go through Acts chapter 2, the next couple of Sundays, uh, I pray and trust that the Lord is going to use these words to, uh, to build us up to glorify himself, first of all, but to build us up so that we might then be used by God to bring salvation, to bring salvation to those who are lost and confused and all the noise of the world, that we get to be used by God as a new creation, as a new temple, as a new humanity. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. We praise you for your glorious name, uh, the name that is above every single name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that one name under, under heaven by which men must be saved. And we pray, Father, that we would know him today, uh, to know that he is at work in the world and he's at work in this place. He's at work amongst us to create anew, to fill anew this temple. And Lord, we pray uh, to create a new humanity. So there are many peoples around us in our neighborhoods and our communities from all walks of life, tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. We pray, Lord, that you would bring them to us and us to them so that you might be glorified, praised, and exalted, and that this church might be built up uh, as a place that is known uh, for participating in the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to lift up our Lord, to shine the light upon him, not ourselves. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say.